Okay, well, we are going to jump in now to our study on congregationalism and elders. Our brother Aaron already prayed about our study, so we're just going to jump in, trusting God to answer that prayer. And so, let's, um, let's think about this together. You have your notes here in front of you. So we are on session five of six lessons on the theology of the church, or what we've been calling Baptist Essentials. Why are you Baptist? Not just because you joined a Baptist church, not because of tradition, that's not a good answer. It should be because you have studied the Bible, and you understand what the Bible teaches about what the church is. And so um, we'll talk about how the congregation's role and the elder's role, or pastor's role, fit together. Now... We can't say that congregationalism and eldership is a burning topic for most Christians today, right? Most Christians aren't saying, I just want to study congregationalism and really grasp the glories of that biblical truth. And yet, here you are tonight studying this topic. So I think it's going to profit us to understand why we think this is important. So let me pose a question to you. Let's say that you don't hold an office in our church as a leader, and let's say you never will. You never plan to be a Sunday school teacher. You never plan to be a pastor, elder, or a deacon. Why is it important for you, as a non-leader, who will never be a leader? Again, this is just hypothetically. Why is it important for a member to understand what leadership model the Bible describes for the local church? I'll leave that open for you. And you're just going to have to shout it because Brandon is resting. Oh, you got a mic? Okay. Why is it important for a normal Christian member to understand this teaching? You think. So you want me to, okay, why is it important for you to understand what leadership model the Bible describes for the local church? Because that's, uh, we need to pray in both those type of people and we need to pray for them. Okay, so we need to be praying for leaders and then we need to vote certain types of people in, as members and leaders you're talking about. Okay, yeah, good. What else? Jose. Someone has to give Brandon like $5 after today for all that he's serving us with after all this time. Because the church has the keys to the kingdom regarding binding and loosening, so it's very important. Okay. Christ gives us the call to do that, and we should take it seriously. Right. We've covered that a few weeks ago, that the church has the keys. Good. Anything else? Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For it will, um, so that they lead with great joy, which will be an advantage to you. So if you're going to support leaders, you should know what the Bible teaches so that you can make it a joy for them. We all want to be faithful to Scripture. What did Jesus say at the end of the Great Commission? Uh, baptizing them and teaching them to obey what? All that I've commanded. So in other words, we don't get to just obey some verses in the Bible, especially in the New Testament as it applies to the church. We have to obey every single verse. And that's actually what pushes us towards being Baptist, actually. If we could fudge on some of these verses and say, oh, well, it's not that important for excommunication and discipline or this or that, then we wouldn't make a big deal of these things. But if we're trying to really obey all that Christ commanded, it pushes us, I would argue, to these, um, to these conclusions. Brandon, we're done with questions for now, so you could relax, brother. Thank you. Um, okay, so, so we want to think about the authority of Christ given to the authority, uh, giving authority to the church and authority to the elders or the pastors. And these are two different kinds of authorities, but the most basic kind of authority in the church, humanly speaking, is the whole congregation. Now, within the church authority, congregational authority, you have the authority of pastor elders, okay? That authority of the pastor elders is not outside or above the congregation's authority. It's within the authority of the congregation, Okay, now we'll talk about, so we'll talk about the congregation's authority, the pastor's authority, and then how those two fit together. So let's look at those one at a time, starting here with number two, the authority of the congregation. What is, there's a handout there if you want one, and song sheets for you guys. The authority of the congregation. Now for some people, congregationalism, how many, how many of you have heard that word before? Congregationalism. Raise your hand if you've heard of the word before. Okay, most of you have. That could be a scary word for people. You know why? Because people can ask, well, what are we talking about? Does that mean we have to vote as a whole church on what kind of pencils we're going to buy? And maybe we have to vote, or maybe there's going to be fights breaking out in the church over the color of the carpet? 
And so stories like these, horror stories, you know, breed fear in our souls about the word congregationalism. But the question is, what does the Bible say? Right? What does the Bible say? And here's the big idea I want you to get this evening. The Bible teaches that church membership is an office. It's a job. And your job as a church member is to guard the what and the who of the gospel. Your job as a church member is to guard the what, what is the gospel, and the who, who are gospel people. That is your job. So it's the whole church's job to answer the questions, is that a true gospel confession? Mormon knocks on your door, has the Book of Mormon, and they say, we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are Christians. As a church, do we consider their teaching a true gospel confession? Yes or no? Why or why not? It's the local church's job to define what is a true gospel confession. And then also, who is a true, is that a true gospel confessor? That is really the heart of congregationalism. The congregation exercising the role to say, this is a true gospel confession, this is a false gospel confession. This is a true gospel confessor, this is a false gospel confessor. So let's unpack this with four statements. And you have them there. Statement number one, right there in your notes. There are different kinds of authority in the church. People often treat authority as either or. Either the congregation has the authority or the pastor elders have the authority. And in many places like that, it's true. But that's not the case in the church. Pastors have one kind of authority. The congregation has a different kind of authority. And Jesus holds the congregation and the pastors each responsible for their part. You can think of that with the American government. Who has the authority in our country? There's a few answers. The people, the president, the Supreme Court justices, the Congress, Right? You can just go down to the different branches and do they all have authority to some degree in some way? Yes. There's not one answer to it. And actually, I would argue, though we don't want to get into history now, I think part of the American experiment of governing is actually coming from biblical principles of honoring congregationalism. You know, but let's not go there. Okay. Some people actually think of it the other way, that Baptists have taken an American idea of democracy and then put it in the church. Where actually, historically, it's the other way around. Baptists started in the, you know, in 1609 with John Smith. So we're not going to get into history right now, but the point is Baptist church polity precedes American democracy. And I think American democracy is actually influenced by it. Another story. Okay, that's number one. There are different kinds of authority. Number two, statement number two right there in your notes. The authority of the keys of the kingdom that our brother Jose alluded to. The authority of the keys of the kingdom belong to the congregation as a whole. Remember Matthew 16, 18 and 19 right there? You don't have to look at that, um, but you can. But remember Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You know, for man has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. And I give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom there were given to Peter in that. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind and whatever you loose. 1619. So Jesus is interested in the what and the who. Because he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave a confession. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is a true gospel confession. If you thought Jesus was just Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, or not fully God, or whatever else the case, you know, whatever else someone says today, that would be determining whether it's a true or false gospel confession. That's the what. We are guarding the what. What is the gospel? What is a gospel confession? And then we're also guarding the who... In terms of, is this person confessing the God? Is this person a faithful confessor of the gospel? And so, Jesus gives Peter and the apostles the authority to stand right in front of a confessor. Someone who says, I'm a Christian. Okay? To hear his confession, and then as Peter and the apostles, they get to announce and declare, on behalf of heaven, an official judgment. That is a right confession. 
That is not a right confession. That is, this is a true confessor. This is not a true confessor. Do you feel the weight of this responsibility? A Mormon wants to join our church, our congregation. When we, when we vote them in, this is not mere formality, by the way, when we bring them up here. We are saying, is this a true gospel confessor? Yes or no. And that is where the church exercises the keys of the kingdom. So I want to make sure you get this. Whoever is holding the keys of the kingdom has heaven's authority not to make a Christian. We're not talking about power for the apostles or power for the church to make Christians, but to recognize and declare officially in the earthly realm who is a gospel Christian. We do this through baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's a visiting embassy if your passport expires. We talked about that, remember? If your passport expires in another country, the embassy cannot make you a citizen. They can simply recognize and make an official declaration that you already are a citizen, right? And renew your passport. And so it is with the church. We are like an embassy in Bellflower from heaven. We are a heavenly assembly or a heavenly embassy here in Bellflower for anyone who wants to know what's going on in heaven. And who's a, he- who's a citizen of heaven? Well, go to one of the embassies and find out who these gospel heavenly citizens are. Okay, so Matthew 16, the Peter and the apostles hold the keys. We, you know, to, just to move on for the sake of time. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about church discipline. And he says, if someone sins, one of you go. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If they don't listen, tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, let him be to you like a unbeliever or tax collector for whatever you bind in heaven or on earth has been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. Who who did he just give the keys to? The church, right? He just told the church that you are to bind and loose. Now notice in Matthew 18, there is no mention of pastor elders. Did you notice that? Take it one, two or three, tell it to the church, and then exercise the keys. There's no mention of pastors or elders. The church is the final court of appeal. So the local church has the authority to guard the what and the who of the gospel. It holds the keys. Okay, so is this, is this what congregationalism, yes or no? Putting a microphone in the aisle during a church business meeting so that disgruntled members can come up and tell the pastors how to do their job. Is that the heart of congregationalism? I see you nodding no, you're right. That is not the heart of congregationalism. It's not about just complaining about what the pastor should do. It's about protecting and proclaiming the gospel. When you're baptized in the name of Christ, you become responsible for the family name, right? If you adopt someone in your family, they take on your family name, and now they're responsible to guard that family name. And that responsibility is matched by an authority. Wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, as a church, they get to exercise the key, say through discipline, and there is Christ in the midst of them. His reputation and authority stand behind the exercise of the keys. So, if I was not a pastor, and someone was saying, well, only pastors make these decisions, I would say, don't tell me that I formally wear Jesus' name before the nations. I'm wearing a jersey that I'm one of Jesus' people, but that I'm powerless to protect his name against false doctrine and false professing Christians. That's why congregationalism is important. Because every member has a role as part of a congregation to protect the gospel from false doctrine and false professors. That's number two. There are your notes. Now go on the inside. Let's go to number three. Moving along. Number three of your notes here. Church membership, therefore, is an office or a job. So here I have two responsibilities for you. Here's your job description. Job responsibility number one, help preserve the gospel. Galatians 1. To everyone joining our church, you should say, you... Okay, who do we take in last week? Our newest members? Chris and Bethany, who are out of town, if you saw the email, the group email. They're driving down from Northern California today. They asked for prayer. Chris and Bethany, when we took them in, we are saying to them, you ordinary member of this congregation, you are responsible for protecting and preserving the gospel. You are sharing in the handling of our keys. That's what we're declaring to a church member. That's why Paul calls the congregation to clean up false teaching about the gospel in Galatians 1. Now, who are the main teachers in the church? Who's the main teachers in the church? Supposed to be, in terms of office. 
The pastors. So you would think, oh, the pastors are the one who guard the doctrine, right? If there's a false teacher, the pastors are the ones who are supposed to guard it. Yes, in a sense, but no. Think about Galatians 1. Do you remember what Paul said in Galatians 1? If I, Galatians 1, 8 and 9, if I, the apostle Paul, or an angel from heaven, preach to you a different gospel than the one you heard, let him be cursed. I say to you again, if I or an angel preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. Now, who's Paul talking to there? The churches of Galatia. It's not a letter to first to Timothy. It's not first Timothy or second Timothy. It's not a letter to Titus as an elder. No, this is a letter to the church. First Southern Baptist Church. If I or anyone comes here preaching a different gospel than the one you have received in the Bible, you must kick them out. That is your responsibility. Ultimately, ours as a church, me as a member, not me as a pastor, that is our responsibility as a church to preserve the gospel. Okay, that's number one. Number two, job description number two, help affirm gospel citizens. So we affirm and disaffirm gospel citizens. First Corinthians five, we talked about last week with church discipline. Or was that two weeks ago now? I think that was two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper. So two weeks ago, we talked about church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, the congregation is the one who excommunicates and incommunicates. Takes in members and sees members out. Whether you're transferring them out or whether you're excommunicating them and, and disciplining them out, excluding them for restoration, the church is the group that makes that call and that decision and that action not the pastors. So when a pastor or elders or a group of pastors say, hey, they say to the church, hey, it's our job to receive the members. It's our job to discipline. It's our job to guard the gospel. You sit down and just trust us. What are they doing? They are simply weakening Christians and promoting complacency and nominalism. You get members of the church who don't know their job and therefore don't do their job, and they end up just sitting there. And they get complacent, and then you get nominalism. A lot of people who profess to be Christian, but they're never actively engaged. And that's what we have in the first 1,500 years of Christendom. Look at church history. If you know anything about church history, that's what you have is a lot of passive Christian at Christianity where the clergy, even that whole idea of clergy and laity, where the clergy have the keys. You get passive laity, and you get nominalism, complacency, and weak Christianity. That's why we take up so much of our time, and I think actually in the future, I would like to take most, not most, but a large chunk of our business meetings should actually be considering who's joining the church. Because we want, I want the members to feel the authority that scriptures give us. I don't think we could do that on a Sunday morning as well. It's kind of rushed, it's microwave, there's pressure. They're sitting right there in front of us. That's awkward. That's awkward. To really exercise the keys of the kingdom, you need to have frank conversations about those we're taking in. That doesn't mean we're gossiping or slandering. We're not doing that. But the members have a right to ask questions because they need to do their job. And it is a little awkward, I think, when you are doing it in front of everyone. The other option is to say, let's not do it, let's just let the elders make the decision or the pastors. Well, once you've that, you've effectively fired your church members from their responsibilities. And you said, you're not doing the job, I'll do it for us. That's not right either. Okay? That's the job description. Now, number four here, the church, the church has, has official authority, has office authority in discipline and membership and in doctrine and leadership. So that, I mean, I've been saying it, but that's why we vote on membership. It's not my decision whether we take a member in or not. It's our decision. It's not my decision whether we excommunicate. That's our decision. It's not my decision whether we update the statement of faith. That's our decision. I don't just hire, I can't just hire a pastor and say, hey, guys, here's your other pastor, my friend, my good buddy from college who needs a job. Here, he's our assistant pastor now. I can't just do that. That is our decision as a church, to affirm who our leaders are. So that, that's the, those are the, the, the decisions we make. Who's going to be a member? Who's going to be disciplined? What is our doctrine and our statement of faith? And who our leaders are? Those are the main decisions we need to make as members and as a membership. Now, there's another one that's prudential. 
It could go either way, but I would say it's, it's wise to put the church budget there. I don't think it's necessarily biblical, but that we ask the church to affirm the annual budget as a whole because the budget determines our direction of gospelizing, right? Our whole budget is supposed to be aimed at spreading the gospel. So we're investing money to spread the gospel. It's good to affirm as a church, are we actually on track to spending our money to maximize gospel initiative in our world? That's a valid question for us to ask, and that's why I think it's wise for pastors to to tell the congregation, hey, let's get buy-in on this as a whole. Now, this has relevance far beyond just voting authority for members' meetings. You might think, okay, by the way, do you know how many members' meetings we have a year? Four. Quarterly, right? Four Four quarters, four meetings. So you say, okay, great. Congregationalism only comes up four times a year. No, that's not true. Beyond that, that is true. That's where we get to exercise it in its fullness. But beyond that, we need to understand that congregationalism actually happens every day. It's when you take responsibility for the discipleship of other members. So you pray for another member. You take them out to lunch and encourage them. You rebuke another member. You read the Bible with another church member. You meet another need of one of the church members. You spend time in fellowship or prayer together. That is congregationalism. That's the church taking responsibility for each other's discipleship. And so therefore, as a church, we need to know each other. We need to get to know each other. We need to be talking about this a lot in the church. We, t- we talk a lot now, maybe we have always, I don't, I've only been here for 14 months, but we talk a lot about being a church family, that it is a family. And well, family, part of being a family is being known and knowing others, Right? That's what it means to be family. And so I hope you can see how this affects our job description as a congregation. We have authority to affirm whether someone is a right confessor and has a right confession. Therefore, we need to get to know each other and speak to each other with grace and truth. This means that if a friend is struggling spiritually, it's your job to help them. It's not to just say, well, let me go call PJ to help you because you need help. No, that's your job. It's not just alerting an elder to the situation, but you being on the front line of pastoral care. You know that we all shepherd each other? Even women pastor other people in this church. That's just normal, informal, you can call it, unofficial shepherding of each other. Now, what do the pastor elders do? We'll talk about this in a second, but they equip the members to encourage them to walk alongside each other. But ultimately, care for each other is our job together. And lest I sound a little scolding and saying, you're not doing your job, I think our congregation is doing that job to some degree, right? Don't you see people praying for each other, asking, how is this person doing? I had one of the members come up to me before this evening service and said, how is this person doing? And how is this person doing? And have you heard about this person lately? What is that? That's congregational care. That's pastoral care. That's faithful church membering. That's what we do as the body of Christ. We get involved. You know, it's a blessing in a healthy church when a pastor hears about a situation, like let's say a sin situation, and they start to uncover it, and you start to find out that there are five, six, seven members already involved in trying to restore the brother or sister before you even get into the situation. That's a sign of a healthy church. The antibodies, right? The immune system doing its work to preserve the health of the body. Any questions? on the authority of the congregation or congregationalism? Thought, comment, question? Does that make sense? You knew this already? PJ, hurry up. Brandon, go ahead. My question is, uh, usually when we vote on people, we haven't heard from them their their doctrine about Jesus, their doctrine of justification. Mm -hmm. We haven't heard usually from them what they believe about that. So we don't... You don't know. I guess we don't have the clearest picture of what what exactly they believe. Right. We may know know they're professing to be a Christian, but we don't know what that means exactly. Okay. Carrie, thought on that? You're responding to Brandon? Or you have another? Okay, go ahead. Uh, It seemed like when we went to the new members class and when we went to your meeting before the week before that we joined the church that you were clear on interviewing us and finding out what we believe and what our situation was. So it seemed like you were the uh, clearinghouse for all this so that 
we wouldn't have to come up and do that in front of the church right in front of the moment. Right, right. And it is a little awkward that, that the people who are being voted on are right there, but you're right. And that, that's where, yeah, I do serve, and the pastors serve as a filter. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, and that's why the congregation at the end of the day still has to make the decision, and they have the right to ask questions. But you'll notice me say, this person agrees with our statement of faith, and they understand the gospel. And therefore, I recommend them as a member of this church. Do we have a motion? Right? You have a motion, and then second, and then I say, is there a discussion? Why am I saying is there a discussion? Because that's where the congregation exercises the keys. I have a question, what about this, or what about that? And that is where the conversation needs to happen. And in a healthy church, that's where the conversation happens. Um, but yeah, so Brandon, that, does that help a little bit? Yeah, I think, I think the way it is now, it would be too awkward to bring up that conversation. And so yeah, I think the conversation about their faith needs to happen when they're not present. Yeah, I do. But, but just to be fair, I mean, you were in Los Angeles with us as well. Even then... I would summarize their doctrine. I mean, you could ask questions, but I would have said the same thing. I've talked to them about their statement of faith. We covered it in the class. We made sure we went over it. I covered it again in the membership interview. I asked them, what is the gospel? They told me the gospel. As best I can tell, I rec- I'm happy to recommend them. Now, at that point, you could still vote no. You say, ah, I don't trust PJ. I want to do my own homework. Okay, that's it's up to you. If you get a majority, then they're not a member. But if you're in the minority and get outvoted, you just continue to be a faithful member. Yeah. I mean, it would actually be ideal even to, to let people know who the candidates are for membership, you know, maybe two or three weeks beforehand so that members can talk to them and encourage them and get to know them even before the business meeting. That would be a good option going forward. But so it is with our I mean, and, and every church is, is constantly trying to get healthier. So I think that's one thing we could work on. Ken, last comment and then we'll move on. And most of the time in the church. Uh, people have visited here, and, and most of the congregation has got to know them uh, really well, as opposed to, say, somebody comes and visits for the first time and walks down the aisle and says, I want to become a member of this church. Right. <laughs> right. So I think at that point, most of us would say, well, we need to have you, you know, take the membership class and... Mm-hmm. and and get to know you. you yeah. Know, somebody could come up and say, you know, and be saved that day. Sure. They walk into the church for the first time and become saved. Yeah, and that happens. It does happen. Yeah. Uh, I've seen Praise God. A lot of time during revivals. Sure. Uh, Billy Graham. People come to his crusades. Right. They came down. And, sure. And uh, became Christians that night. Right. Um, but to become a member of the church, I think. Uh, having a, uh, something in place so that we could recommend that they uh, go through the, the class, the membership class, and then be brought for the church for membership. Right, and I think that's wise. And just let me comment on that, and then we'll move on. Um, by the way, when people come up for the altar call, whether here or in a crusade, this is why it's important that the local church is the one exercising the keys. The altar call is not the exercise of the keys at a crusade. Now, can someone get saved at a crusade? Yes. Does everyone who walks down the aisle at a crusade actually get saved? No. Now, a lot do, and some have even in our church, right? But, but, how do you know? That's where the church gets to know them and, and, and disciple them. And, and if you say, hey, oh, you, you, you believe in Jesus? Praise God, now it's time to get baptized. And they're like, whoa, I don't want to get baptized. Well, don't you trust in Jesus? I do, but I don't want to get baptized. I refuse to get baptized. But I follow Jesus with all my heart. Well, following Jesus with all your heart means you need to get baptized. Well, no, I don't, but I still follow Jesus. Well, we can't affirm your confession if you refuse to obey a very clear command in the Bible. Okay, and does that make sense? So that's why even with crusades and inter-church events, which are great, it always, you know, it's like you could throw all the dust in the air, but eventually when all the dust settles in in Christianity, it, it ends up in local churches. You could, do, you could do praise and worship nights here and Christian colleges over there and you could do everything like that, but when the dust settles, it always comes back to the local churches. Okay? And that's the point. That's where the keys are exercised. Okay, now let's go to the authority of the elders there at the bottom of your second page. So if that's the authority of the congregation to exercise the keys and affirm and preserve the gospel and the who of the gospel, 
then what do the elders, what, what's their job? What's their authority? If, we, if I as a pastor don't have the authority of the keys, and I don't, what, what's my authority? My authority is the authority of teaching and oversight. And you see that there. I have the authority of teaching and oversight. Paul in Acts 20 said this, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's what Paul said to the other elders in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit made you overseers. Titus 1 says an elder must give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Another word for overseer is bishop. But that's what pastors do. They, are, they have the authority of teaching and oversight. Where's the direction of the church? Where are we going? What should we be teaching? Is it biblical? What should be the next book of the Bible to teach? What are being, what's being taught in our children's class? What's being taught in our Sunday schools? Are people being equipped to disciple and read the Bible out in their own homes and with other people? Yes, I mean, that's the oversight of the pastor elders of the church. That means that other than, and there are sometimes this extraordinary circumstances... Other than extraordinary circumstances, the pastor elders use their authority of teaching and oversight to lead the church in its use of the keys. That's why I make recommendations at a business meeting. I recommend we take in Chris to be a member of the church. That's me leading. Now, I'm not making the final decision. I'm saying, hey, church, use your key here to unlock this. But you still have to say, yes, we will unlock this. But that's generally the pastors will lead the congregation in how and where to use the keys. The congregation cannot always wisely adjudicate the what and the who of the gospel. Um, If they can't do that, they can't wisely fulfill their responsibilities unless they have gospel teachers teaching and giving oversight. So in other words, I and other pastor elders, hopefully God adds pastor elders to our church, both on staff and non-staff. As he does that, the pastor elders need to do their job. The church needs pastor elders to lead them in the exercise of the keys. So how do pastor elders do this? Well, we can break up their responsibility. If you see here in this next page into three responsibilities, okay? Three responsibilities for the pastor elders. Number one, the ministry of the word. So when you think about the qualifications of the pastor, it's basically being a Christian, being a mature Christian. Don't get drunk. Don't be angry, be hospitable. Commands that are made for every Christian. But there are two qualifications for a pastor elder that are not true for a Christian. Number one, not a recent convert. And that's relative to the age of the congregation. Secondly, though, a pastor elder must be able to teach. That's right. Not every member must be able to teach to be a Christian. But a pastor elder must be able to teach. And so, you remember Acts 6 with the apostles? There was a debate in the church about the Hebrew wives or Hebrew women, widows, not getting food. Or was it the Greek widows? I don't remember. One group was not getting food. The other group was getting food. They come to the apostles and they say, appoint seven men, deacons, to handle that. We will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and anyone know the second one? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah. Ministry of the Word and Prayer. And so, pastor elders are to devote their time to studying and teaching the Word of God so that the congregation knows God's Word to exercise the keys of the kingdom. So, I equip the church to exercise their keys. Okay? And so, that's the first job of a pastor is to teach the Word. Be biblical. Always, always go with the Bible. Number two, it's the ministry of prayer. Pastor elders need to be praying for the congregation by name, which is why you notice I have that tool to pray for you by name every week and then pray for the congregation as a whole. Because that's that's why I don't have another job. There are pastor elders who are bivocational, and that's okay too. But you have not, I mean, you have blessed me to not be bivocational, which means I have time to spend in prayer for the congregation. And that's part of my responsibility in being a pastor of the church. Am I praying for every member? Am I praying for the church as a whole? Are the future pastor elders who will be here, are they praying for the members regularly? That's their job. That's part of their responsibility. So um, you should be praying for me to be praying, though I know it's ultimately my responsibility to pray, because pastor elders are not immune from the temptations to prayerlessness. We're not immune from distraction. And so pray that we would pray, and that God would sustain us in prayer, and like... Like, like the men who helped Moses hold up 
his hands, you can uphold uh, pastor elders by praying for them that they might be faithful in their ministry of the word and prayer. And then the last responsibility here is the ministry of gathering and protecting. Acts 20, verse 28. The ministry of gathering and protecting. One of the main condemnations that God levels against bad shepherds in the Old Testament is that the shepherds have scattered the flock and basically used the flock for their own advantage. That's an indictment in the Old Testament. And that's true today. There are pastors who use churches for their own advantage, not to bless and serve the congregation, but to build up themselves financially or socially or, you know, in whatever ways that they want to abuse the church. Now, Jesus is not like that as the good shepherd. He gives his life for the sheep, right? If there's 99 and there's one missing, what does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And that's what pastors are to be in terms of faithful serving of the flock. Acts 20, 28 says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Which is why, time out, side note, when I look at our members list of 973 members, it's impossible. I mean, I don't even know these, uh, you know, 900 of of this list. Just about 900 of the list. How can pastor elders oversee a flock who are on their roles that, you know, that, that aren't here? It's, it's, it almost makes, it makes pastoring almost impossible because you don't know who the flock is. And then the members have to exercise the keys and hold each other accountable. Well, you don't know who all the members you're responsible for, but you also are responsible for the 973, not just me, in a different way. And so, okay, time in. Back to 1 Peter 5, 2. Be shepherds of the flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. So shepherd them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief pastor appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So pastor elders, and Lord willing, in our church, I'm praying, maybe 2016, maybe 2017, God will add in our church, One, two, three more pastor elders. Maybe some on staff if our church could afford it. That's okay if our church can't. We could, we could, we could appoint and recognize non-staff pastor elders who are giving maybe 10 to 15 hours a week to, to, to a team shepherding of our church family. Our church will be more blessed with more pastor elders in our church. We'll have greater care for them. And so we need to know that elders must keep watch over all the flock. Almost always members should submit and follow their leaders as well. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Hebrews 13, 7 says, follow their example. And so that's the ministry and responsibility of the elders. Okay, summarize. Congregation's responsibility is authority to exercise the what? The keys. Pastor's authority, pastor elders, is to is the authority of teaching and oversight, right? Teaching and oversight. So you have authority here and authority here. Question. Key question, how do these two fit together? Okay, they're butting heads here. Maybe they are. How do these two work together? Here's um, Ephesians 4.11 says this. Listen to Ephesians 4.11. And you can look at this, or actually it's right there in your notes. Look at Ephesians 4.11 right there in your notes. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, or shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to do what? To what? Equip the saints. If you have a pen, circle the word equip and then underline the saints. What is the role of the shepherds and teachers? To equip the saints. And what are the saints going to do? The work of what? The work of ministry for the building up of the the body of Christ. So whose job is it to build up the body of Christ? The church, the saints. Who's equipping them? The pastors and teachers, right? And so now the whole congregation is, go to verse 13. Until the church attains to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Notice, not being carried away by false doctrine because we preserve the gospel, right? We're exercising the keys. What is a true confession? The church will only be as strong as the members are holding to true doctrine. Verse 15, Rather than being swayed by false doctrine, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to do what together? 
grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body is building itself up in love. See that? Who's building up the body? We, the body is building itself up. Who's equipping the body to do that? The pastors and teachers. That's their job. In other words, how do these two things fit together? Pastors have the authority of teaching and oversight. The congregation has the authority of exercising the keys. And so the pastors equip the congregation to exercise the keys and to live congregational life. Not just the quarterly meetings, but my job is to equip you that every Sunday and every day of the week, you learn how to share life and share Jesus together to care for one another. That's how a healthy church builds itself up in love. Okay? And so that is my job, and that is our job as church members. I am to equip, you are to take that equipping and use it for the work of sharing life and sharing Jesus, which is gospel ministry. So here's two errors. Go to the back, last page here. Two errors that we could fall into, and we want to avoid both. On the one hand, we don't want to be a passive congregation. On the one hand, congregationalism does not see the congregation as merely rearing its head to exercise authority in only emergency situations. There may be some of that, emergency situations. We'll explain that in a second. But on the whole, gospel protection is a day-to-day work of the congregation equipped by the pastor elders. Okay, this is not quarterly. This is daily. Remember Hebrews Hebrews 3, 12 and 13? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of our members an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to what? Fall away from the living God. Instead, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that you might not be hardened by by the deceitfulness of sin. That's congregational life. Equip the members to, to encourage each other every day so that none of our members get excommunicated. Right? That, that's congregationalism. And so, think about these two hypothetical churches for a second. Church number one. FSBC, that's our church. FSBC number one. The pastors have the barbells and jump rope. So pastors are working out. They got the barbells, they got the jump rope. And here I am doing all the exercises and I'm saying, Hey everyone, just sit down and watch me exercise. So that you can learn how to be strong too. That's church number one. Church number two. Pastors are walking around the crowd of lawn chairs and he's handing out barbells and jump ropes and then he's showing them how to use it. Which church will be stronger and more physically fit? Number two, right? And of course, we're not talking about barbells and jump ropes. We're talking about guarding the who and the what of the gospel. But which one will be healthier internally and more evangelistic externally? The church that exercises the keys regularly Or the church that just watches the pastors exercise the keys regularly. Obviously, the church that that practices it. So we don't want a passive congregation. I don't want you to be a rubber stamp on everything I say. I'm trying to equip you so that we can follow the Spirit together by the Scriptures. Okay, that's number one. Now, the second error, last error here, is we don't want an all... So you can have a passive congregation, you could also have an all-powerful congregation. In an all-powerful congregation, we could think of it as a representative democracy. So people could look at Baptist polity and think, okay, I get it. It's like the congregation is the people and the elders are the Congress. They're elected by the congregation to do what we want, and if they don't do what we want, we vote them out at the next election. No, 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 no. It's not like that at all. To be, tr- to be sure... Truly, the congregation does have the most basic authority under Christ. But the authority of the elders isn't given to me by you. It's given to us by Christ. And so the elders are to use their authority to help the congregation exercise their authority. That means, in a faithful pastoral ministry, hopefully I'm being a faithful pastor, 99.9% of the time, the two authorities work together, and they're not butting heads. Then, in extreme situations... The congregation must use their authority over and against the authority of the elders, kind of like a veto power, like an emergency brake. How often do you use your emergency brake when you're driving? Not often, but you might need it in some situations, and that's what it's there for. So we teach members coming in their role. We teach the congregation its role that if the elders go astray against the gospel, 
or start saying, let's take in members who are not true gospel confessors, that the congregation actually stands up and ousts the pastor elders. So generally, again, these two authorities work together. But in, in, in extreme situations, there might be veto uh, necessity for vetoing a pastor's or the pastoral team's leadership. Okay, so generally, neither the elders nor the congregation are, exer- are exercising their authority as a trump card. We don't say, do this because I say so, I'm the pastor. Or the church doesn't say, PJ, do this because we say so, we're the congregation. Instead, we live under the weight of our responsibility before God, and we exercise our authority with care and with joy, and with careful scriptural obedience. Here's our job as we get ready to pray. Um, our job, well, let me read, um, uh, let me close with, close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said, borrowing some, some words from Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what he said, quote, I am occupied in my small way, he's a pastor, I'm occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business as a pastor. I am engaged in personally conducted tours of heaven, tours to heaven. And I have with me at the present time, dear old Father Honest. I am glad he is still alive and active. And there is Christiana, and there are her children. It is my business, as best I can, to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and lead on the timid and trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them, but by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, church, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many I have had to part with there. I have stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream, and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. So here's the goal of a pastor, pastors. We are trying to shepherd every member. You know, a lot of the church in church history used the river as kind of the river. And this is from um, Pilgrim's Progress. You pass the river of death into heaven. So pastors, their job is to shepherd the congregation to that river to get you safely to the, to the river of death. You die in Christ and then you go to heaven. That's our goal. That's my goal. And that's the goal of the church in terms of our congregationalism is that we would shepherd and equip each other so that we get every single member safely in Christ to their death and usher them into heaven. That's the role of the church. That's what we're trying to do with each other. We want to help each other live well and die well for the glory of God and then we'll celebrate in heaven for all eternity. Any closing question or comment on your part? What does it mean in, Hebrew, in Ephesians 4, where it says, and this is Ephesians 4, 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I think that means unity in doctrine. In Ephesians 4, that's verse 13. In Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, we have one faith, one Father, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it goes through what we have. It is the... what what. Jude called contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, our, our doctrine. Okay? Good question. Other questions on the authority of the congregation, authority of pastors, or how they fit together? Jose? Um, when you talk about John Mike's coming? All right there. When you talk about John Smith in like John Bunyan? No. Earlier. Oh, John Smith, 1609. 1609. When Baptist started. So when Baptist started, it started with uh, it started with congregation. Did you guys have a big 2009 celebration of 400 years of Baptist life? Just wondering. All right, go on. Uh, when when he started the Baptist movement, did one of the one of his distinctions were congregationalism too? <sighs> That's a good question. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I want to say yes, it was, but I don't know for sure. I'd have to look that up. Okay. Great question. He eventually became a heretic, though, sadly. Yeah, he denied the gospel and, and started embracing false doctrines. Our first English Baptist. But there that is. We're not dependent on, on people, ultimately. I could make shipwreck of my faith. That wouldn't destroy this church, necessarily. Right? You just cling to Christ and the Bible. So, 
Okay? Brandon, two more comments or questions. In Hebrews, when it, when it says, uh, obey and submit to the elders, what, 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 is it, what exactly is it referring to there? Okay, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them as those who will give an account, for they are watching over your souls. What does it mean to obey your leaders? It means that when your pastors... Now, it just means what it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, hopefully you have good pastors who are not overstepping their authority and just saying, hey, I want you to do 10 jumping jacks because Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders. Yeah, I don't have any biblical grounds to say that, right? I don't even have biblical grounds to say we should paint this wall green. I could suggest it, but I don't have the authority biblically to to do that. So in that sense, I would say obeying your leaders when they're giving you biblical truth and teaching for your life. So if I'm telling you to repent for your sin, or if I'm telling you to confess this to your wife, or whatever the case. If I'm, if I'm telling you biblical commands, you are to obey and submit to them. If I say something like, um, we need to excommunicate so-and-so because they're sleeping with their father's wife, just like 1 Corinthians 5, I'm telling you, God wants us to excommunicate this person. Now, you could, you could vote to not and disagree with me, but that would be a disobedience if I'm being biblical. The key to all of it is if your leaders are being biblical, right? When they're not, all bets are off at that point. You obey God rather than men, right? And that's always true, no matter where. In the, in the marriage, in the government, in the church, always obey God rather than men. But when the men that God has put in leadership over you in appropriate relationships are faithfully leading in God's way, then you definitely submit to them as an expression of your submission to God. Yeah, good question. One more comment or question. Anyone encouraged by this or why you're thankful for this? Go ahead. One of the things that pastors and elders have to look into, though, is uh, that God's going to hold them accountable for everything that they do. Yeah. And they hold them to a higher standard than they do. Yes. Yes, yes. The very scary part of Hebrews 13, 17. Someone might say, oh, I want, to, I want everyone to obey me. Well, read the rest of the verse. Submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You don't want to appoint any pastor elder in this church who does not feel the weight of that coming judgment. That is a very serious judgment. And so you want pastor elders who take that very seriously. Um, And I'm praying that God would add more pastor elders, but they need to understand. They need to tremble at that verse. And if they don't, I'm not recommending them to be pastor elders here because that is a very serious accountability. And if we're not if we're not as a team of pastor elders feeling that, then that's just going to misdirect our morale and our direction.